the passage and from the reading, the final point that he is making has to do with the duty that the Christian has of fighting for the Lord and buckling on his armor in this present life. We must never dream of ease or relaxation as the people of God until we get clean out of this world. We are warriors, we are fighters against the devil, against error and superstition and irreligion and immorality and darkness of every kind. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now you may say to me, why should the Apostle bring his great epistle to the Ephesians to an end with this subject? Why does he not end with some other note? And I say to you, it is doubtless because of the substance of all that he has been telling them in this epistle as a whole. Now, briefly, it is this that he has been telling them. He has been revealing to them the profound purpose of God in this world. We looked at some of that purpose this morning in chapter 1 of this very letter. And uh, all the way through, he is talking about the great plan of God. And this, he says, is what the plan is. It is to bring a people out of this world to Christ in the course of time and to give those people to Christ as his own church. So the church is a distinct entity in the world. There is nothing to compare with the church so far as God is concerned. It doesn't bear comparison with anything. Nothing can be said beside it as of any equivalent value in the eyes of God. The state is comparatively little or nothing. All the institutions that men have set up in their society are comparatively little or nothing. But the church is the great focus of all God's purposes. His people are his inheritance. So the church is supreme. The people of God are what the eye of God is upon and always was upon and always will be upon all throughout history all throughout time. Indeed the whole Bible really is just a record to us of how God has kept his church in the world. Whether we look at the phase of the patriarchs or even before that in the days of the flood or after that in the days in Egypt or in times of the kings and through to the Messiah and the apostles and the early church the whole of the Bible is a record to us of this great plan to gather a church out of the world and to give them to Christ. And in the epistle to the Ephesians we have a synopsis of all 
their plan. We have a compendium and a breviary and a, a shorthand account of all that God is doing by gathering his church. We read about the election of the church, the regeneration of the church, the gathering of the Gentiles into the church, chapter 3, one of the great mysteries of scripture. And we are called, we are told that the church is called the fullness of Christ, if you please. What an expression. The church is the fullness of Christ. It is further, he says, the temple of the Spirit, the body of Christ, and the bride of Christ. Now, in between all this exposition, which we have in Ephesians, he weaves various exhortations to humility, to unity, to fidelity, and to charity. And having done all of that, he now comes to his last heading. Finally, my brethren, be strong, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now you will notice from the reading in Revelation chapter 12 that there we have exactly the background we need to understand this section because Revelation chapters 12 through to 19 those seven or eight chapters are an expansion of the warfare between the church and the devil the devil we saw in that chapter did his best to destroy Christ but was not successful. The church, like the mother in the illustration, gives birth to the man-child. The church gave birth to Jesus. The mother of the Jesus is the church, in a way of speaking, figurative speaking. And so the devil tries to destroy Christ, but is unsuccessful. And next we see our Lord is swept up to the throne in his exaltation. But the church is left below. Here is the mother of Christ. Here is the bride of Christ. Left here in this dangerous world. With all the powers of hell let loose. And the dragon. Uh, with his horns and his tails. Ready to sweep her. And to destroy her. And to overwhelm her. But then we see God secretly working to protect her she is given wings like an eagle to fly away and then the earth opens her mouth and helps her and all of this is to go on until the second coming a thousand two hundred and sixty days I think it is is it not and then again by another figure of speech a time times and half a time that is to say all the period until Christ returns when our beloved saviour comes back when our blessed bridegroom appears upon the clouds to gather us out of this world and to take us home ever until then we must fight because he says there's a great cosmic battle going on Michael and his angels that no doubt means Christ and the dragon and his angels are in locked in mortal combat 
And the devil's going about to do all the mischief he can because he knows his time is short. And he goes about as a roaring lion, says Peter in his epistle, in order to devour whom he can. Now I want to suggest to you, my beloved friends, tonight, that this passage of scripture in Ephesians 6 is extremely relevant to the day and age in which we're living. How is it that the church has shrunk in our land before our very eyes? If you go to Glasgow and talk to the old Christians there, they speak about huge congregations in the 1940s and 50s and then somehow they melted away. And that is true in many parts of the country. London had vast congregations and powerful evangelical institutions. But it seems to have melted away. What about Edinburgh, the capital city of Calvinism in the whole world? A hundred and so many years ago in the Sabbath day you wouldn't hear any noise on the Sabbath apart from the noise of people walking along the streets and crossing and passing each other to go to their different congregations all over the city. What has happened to the church? What has happened to the power of the gospel? Well the answer is in terms of our text. Men began to relax. They began to take it easy. Now they didn't realize there was a fight on. And so the devil got in. And he wrought havoc in our beloved land. And he minced up the churches and ground the powder. So that today we are a people scattered and peeled, marginalized, driven against the wall, fluttered out. And the great bulk of our society doesn't care tuppence for what we stand for. And I say what we need today is fighters. Men who will fight for Christ and put on the armor of God. So let's look at it under three brief heads. First of all, the enemy. Second, the armor. Thirdly, the victory. They're all here. The enemy, the armor, and the victory. Now the enemy we're told here is this, verse 10 Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might Put on the whole armor of God That he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil For we wrestle not against flesh and blood But against principalities, against powers Against the rulers of the darkness of this world Against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we're told here, first of all, we are not fighting against men. That's the first great doctrine. And that's a tremendous relief to know that because very often you and I imagine that we're fighting against men. But this helps us to realize it is not the case. You know, we would get very angry, wouldn't we, as Christians? We'd get extremely angry with men if we didn't have the information here in this section. I mean, 
Don't you feel as I do sometimes? I smoke with indignation. I burn with indignation at the way in which leaders in our nation are raising children and schools and the whole of the youth of our land is polluted. Now, I would go mountains, so would you, if we didn't remember that these poor men who pass laws and bring in clinics and bring in their programs and schemes for educating the young in wickedness, if we didn't remember that they are simply the stooges of the devil. Poor things, they're simply the accomplices of the powers of hell. They're simply doing the devil's wicked works for him. So that takes the sting out of it. We cease to be so indignant against them. We realize that they are but secondary, pin, secondary figures and little marionettes. The strings are being pulled not by men, but by the devils, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickednesses in high places. They are the architects of our permissive society. They are the ones who enter the conclaves of cardinals and bishops and ruin the church by bringing in tradition and superstition of many kinds and darkening worship and blackening the gospel and polluting the streams that make glad the city of our God. So it helps us to know that we're not fighting against our own indwelling sins only. We're not our own worst enemies, as some people say. No, no, the devil is our worst enemy. Let me say a few things about him and his fellow demons. Beloved friends, I must remind you, the devil is tremendously strong. He is invisible, full of power, full of craft, full of malice. Did you think of it this way? The devil is 100% wicked. Now that's not true of human beings in this life. There is no human being in this life who is 100% wicked. Even the worst of men have some spark or other of humanity and uh, long-suffering and pity. But not the devil. My friends, the one against whom we are to fight is 100% Spiteful, jealous, evil, murderous, lying, deceitful. He desires to destroy your soul with himself in hellfire forever. He schemes night and day to ruin your wife, your child, your home, this church, my ministry, ministry, the Prime Minister, the Queen, her family, the government, the institutions of all our nations. The devil is against it all, but especially against the church, because it is the bride of Christ, and his hatred is primarily against Christ. And woe be to the church that fails to know that the devil is just only a few inches outside every pulpit and outside every door 
and open the door and he'll be in give him opportunity and he'll come in and he will wreak havoc amongst the people of God and scatter the people of God because that is his terrible work it is a vast empire of wickedness and how does it work? it works like this his fiery darts are to try to destroy men's faith in the truths of God that is his work if he can get us to doubt the Bible then his work is complete that's all it requires as soon as men doubt the Bible he has accomplished everything he needs to accomplish that is his great snare the lie you know how when you're trying to catch an animal you lay a, a, a snare for it or you have a trap perhaps for rabbits or game of some kind you have a trap and the animal comes running along but then you have a sort of a wire noose and the animal doesn't notice it and as it's bounding along he puts one of his paws into the noose unsuspecting and then the wire catches and it may pull as hard as it wishes but it will never get free now the noose upon which the devil depends to destroy men is the single simple noose of unbelief he tried it with, the, with our first parents Adam and Eve yea hath God said and that's what he's doing today he's doing it everywhere he's making people doubt the word of God oh my dear friends do you recognize this to doubt the word of God is to play at once into the hands of Satan so now the second thing is the armor how are we to resist with the armor of God he says put on the whole armor of God it's called armor of God because God himself has provided this for his people God himself has made this provision for his people it is divinely ordained armor for the people of God it's an illustration drawn from the Roman soldier as Paul went about his work he would notice the Roman soldiers going about their duties with the army indeed he himself was chained sometimes to Roman soldiers and could very well have been chained to them when he wrote these words in his prison at Rome or somewhere and so he is comparing now the armor with the armor of the Roman soldier and I think it would be right to say that there are seven pieces of armor which the Christian is to put on let's look at them briefly verse 14 the first one stand therefore having your loins girt with truth so the first one is the truth what does that refer to well it's a poetical way of saying or an illustrative way of saying we need to know the doctrine we need to know the theology of the Word of God dear parents oh please catechize your children dear parents I beg you if you love your children's souls teach them 
the doctrines of the word of God. Dear Christians, teach yourselves the doctrines of the word of God. Know this book and know the best books of theology. You don't need to be an academic theologian, but you must know the doctrines of the word of God. Why? Well, because he tells us we have to have our loins girt about with the truth. This is the belt that goes round the body. We must have it. If we don't know the doctrines, we can't resist the devil. If we don't know our theology, we cannot be effective <coughs> in this warfare against the powers of darkness. We cannot. It is impossible. He tells us that. And that, you know, is where we've gone wrong. In so many places, people have been very scornful of doctrine. But there's no way that you and I can survive in the battle. We must know the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms and Burkhoff and a little bit of Calvin and especially those of you who are more academic and more gifted and young men who may be called to the work of the preaching of the ministry and the church. Oh, study the Word of God and the doctrine. That is the way to be strong in the Lord. The devil is afraid of the truth. The truth is what exposes the devil. It is the light that shows the devil up to be what he is. So if you have friends who are students, if you have children who are students, feed them with the truth. Give them the best books. Think of those books which would help them most and be most appealing to them. A little biography perhaps and yet suitably accommodated to their needs because of the truth within it. And then second, we must have the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? Now this is justification by faith. We've got to know this doctrine. We have to understand the way of justification. We have to know the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is God's reckoning as righteous. Sanctification is God making us righteous. And we must know these things and understand these things. Whenever the church has become weak and unsound, it is always connected with the loss of the doctrine of justification. That's why Martin Luther of the Reformation said that this doctrine of justification is the article of a standing or falling church. And that's why the church is falling in the country today. It's because we've lost the doctrine of justification. That sinners are justified freely by his grace through the redemption it is in Christ Jesus. Then we have thirdly the gospel of peace. Our feet shod with the gospel of peace. Now, isn't it interesting? He compares the gospel of peace to our shoes. We are to have these on like the sandals of the Roman soldier. Our shoes are the gospel of peace. Why is that? Well, I think it's for this reason that it means the gospel, if you like, has such an effect upon those that believe it, it makes them travel. Everybody who is affected by the gospel becomes a sort of traveler, if you like. Now, they either become missionaries or else they become visitors to the hospital and visitors to the sick and visitors to the poor and visitors to the... Wherever you come across people who are affected by the gospel immediately they start to travel and move about. 
Uh, they go to their neighbours and say, have a cup of coffee with me, and let's uh, talk about the gospel, shall we? Or they give a tract to somebody next door or down the street, or they pass on an invitation to come to church. The gospel of peace is with them, what motivates them. We should all of us be affected in that way. Let's put on these gospel shoes, my dear friends. Let's be those that travel around and tell the world we've got a message in here. We've got something to say to them in here which can change their destinies as well as their lives in this world. And then fourthly we have the, gospel, we have the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Now this is comparable to the Roman shield that the soldier had. I want to tell you something about the Roman shield because there are all sorts of shields in the ancient world. Some were little round shields, but that's not the kind. The Greeks used to have a little round shield, which they used to use on their left arm. That's not the kind, that's not the idea. The Roman soldier's shield was four feet high and two and a half feet broad. And he carried it on his left arm and he would place it on the ground and he would kneel behind it when the enemy was throwing javelins and uh, firing arrows or something at him. It was like a veritable door which he carried wherever he went. And the Roman soldier could use this wherever he was. And all the Romans uh, used to, the soldiers used to lock their shields one against another. So it made like a whole row of shields. And sometimes if they were besieging a wall, they would lock their shields right across the whole territory where they were standing, on top of their heads, a whole rock, a whole row of shields right across the whole army. And as people threw things down from above, their shields took all the force. And that is how we are to be, my dear friends. We are to have faith in the truth of God and in the power of God. We are never to doubt his word. And if you and I hold fast our belief in Christ and in his glorious gospel, the devil can never disturb us, even though he throws at us these fiery darts of doubt and unbelief and temptation. They cannot kindle upon us because the shield will bring safety and deliverance. Then fifthly, there is the helmet. The helmet he speaks about here is referred to in verse 6, 17. Take the helmet of salvation. Now, what is that? Well, the helmet refers to the protection round a man's mind, his brain. And the brain is very important to the Christian because this is the, the thinking part. And you know, we must never as Christians imagine we don't need to think. There's another great sin among Christians today, generally, or church-going people. They are not thinking. They are just accepting tradition without thinking about the scriptures and applying the scriptures. Now, you and I must be thinking people, and the devil would love to strike us in our intellect and in our mind. He would like to prejudice us away from clear thinking about the truth of God. But you and I know better. We must have on the helmet whereby we shall be clear in our thinking. Clear in the way we judge of every man. We must know who we're dealing with. We must read the characters of people. We must understand that some people can be trusted and some cannot. Some people are full of love and some are deceitful. We must realize that 
through the mind we are to discern all men and discern all things and we were to go wisely about the work of Christ because we must use the mind then sixthly the sword of the spirit the Bible here is the only offensive weapon all the rest are defensive and you will notice there are no armor plates for the back for the obvious reason we are not to turn our back on the enemy all our armory is on the front the Roman soldier didn't have armor on the back Roman soldiers never turned their back the famous story is told about Pyrrhus king of Epirus in Greece who had elephants if you please as a part of his army and he drove his elements through the Romans and he, this, he, he beat them once or twice uh, but it was such a dreadful battle that when Pyrrhus got home he said my victory was so slight it was hardly worth winning at all and then when he went to the battlefield this is the touching thing he saw Pyrrhus saw that all the Romans who had been killed every one of them they had their faces that way not one of them had turned their back and Pyrrhus admired them though they were dead oh these Romans he said with an army like that I could conquer the world let Christ have an army like that dear friends and he will conquer the world no turning the back but wielding the sword of the spirit you know how Jesus did this when the devil came the devil said if you're the son of God do this and this and this and this now Jesus could have said well Satan let's have a discussion about this maybe you've got a point maybe we can come to terms that wasn't the way Jesus dealt with the devil he took out his sword and he said it is written it is written again it is written my friend one Christian who knows his Bible is more than a conqueror against all the skeptics in the world if you know your Bible young man at university or college if you know your Bible you have nothing to fear from clever professors and free thinkers and skeptics and atheists you have nothing to fear young lady if you know the Bible because here is the sword of the spirit and the devil himself cannot stand up before the sharp point of this truth still less can feeble men and then the seventh weapon is prayer praying with all prayer and supplication in the spirit so then let us pray for more of this gospel spirit and the putting on of gospel armor dear friends no man ever got to heaven no man ever got to heaven unless he put on this gospel armor we must have assurance we must have boldness let's not make a virtue out of being weak in knowledge weak in faith weak in assurance weak in confidence we are called upon to be bold and to be brave and to be courageous men and women of God we are called upon to be authoritative in our own families and to insist that our children do as we say for the gospel's sake if we say no it means no if we say yes it means yes there are no Christians who are authority figures in the name of God in our own homes 
And wherever God gives us authority on the Sabbath, this is not done. And that is not done. And you can say what you like, but it will not be done. And that music will not be played. And that program will not be put on. We are servants of God. And the cause has gone down the sink in our country because men and women who should be bold and free are bending the rules and twisting the standards of God. But it won't do. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So that is the armour. Now further to victory. You will notice at verse 11, he uses the word stand. Stand against the wiles of the devil. You notice at verse 14, he uses the word stand again. Stand therefore. You will notice at verse 13, he says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand so he uses stand three times and withstand once very interesting let me explain what these words mean when he says in verse 11 we are to stand against the wires of the devil he means we are to resist when in verse 14 he says we are to stand having our loins girt about with truth Again, he means we are to resist. But when in verse 13 he says that you may be able to withstand in the, ever, in the evil day and having done all to stand, the stand in verse 13 means in the day of judgment, in the day of victory. So you see these three stands summarize, summarize it all. If you and I stand against the devil now, we will stand victorious in the day of judgment then. That is the teaching of this passage. Putting it another way, we are to stand now in grace so that in the end we may stand in glory. Or another way, the church militant and the Christian militant when it stands now will eventually be the church and a Christian triumphant. Some of you remember the words of Churchill in the Second World War when Britain was fighting against untold odds from Nazi Germany. And Churchill's voice was heard over the crackling radio to say this. What can I offer you in Britain? I offer you blood, sweat and tears. It is our darkest hour. We must fight them in the streets. We will fight them in the trenches. We will fight them in the beaches. And we will overcome. Now that wasn't just rhetoric. It was something he meant. And it was done. It was done. It came to pass. Christ's cause is weak today. For want of fighters. For want of ministers who will say to their general assemblies I must preach the word of God whatever you say it's for want of bishops who will put their foot down and say within my diocese 
Christ will be preached and nothing else. For want of archbishops who will say to queens and prime ministers, within my archdiocese I will have ministers who adhere to the gospel and to the Bible. But oh my friends, the day of victory is near. And all those who put on the gospel armor and fight the good fight of faith will come at last to their eternal reward. Let me end with famous words of a writer whose name was George Duffield. You will recognize them. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle. The next the victor's song to him that overcometh a crown of life shall be he with the king of glory shall reign eternally let us pray give us eyes to see the need for battle O God may we gird upon us the whole armor of God and buckle to us the shield and draw upon our feet the shoes and put upon our head that gospel helmet of salvation and put upon us all these pieces of armor and in our hand let there be a sharp two-edged sword to execute the vengeance due upon the wicked and make deserved punishment fall upon the enemies of God. And do thou, Lord, fight with us and fight for us. And may we see the tide of battle turned in our times. And the armies of the living God sweeping to new plateaus of victory and occupying the enemy's territory and planting there the standard of Christ's glorious banner and unfurling the gospel standard that all the earth may know that thou art the God of battles and the God of the armies of Israel. And so hear us and receive our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.